This evening's topic is a topic of the most solemn import. And what I mean by that is we're about to talk about something that is most precious. Did I say it's precious? I said we're about to talk about a most precious message, a most precious name. Now, I've told you already, it's night number four, but it's only to to deepen the impression of the fact that I am obsessed with this one and one name alone. What is his name? Jesus. Did we hear about him night number one? Did we hear about him night number two? What about night number three? You were there. What do you think we're going to hear about tonight? Sweetest name I know, beloved. Have you had enough of Jesus yet? I want you to understand that when we get to those pearly gates, do you know that by the grace of God, uh, men can teach, and they can teach well by the grace of God, but there never was a teacher like Jesus Christ. Do you know that in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Bible tells you that everywhere Jesus went to teach, there were spies that would follow Jesus to report back to the scribes and Pharisees everything they heard. And some of these spies, as they were listening to Jesus, trying to trap him, you know, I imagine they were writing down his words. They're trying to trap Jesus. These brothers went back from the sermons of Jesus, and do you know what they were? Converted. The Pharisees sent them to spy on Jesus, and every single time they came back, never a man spoke like this man. Beloved, I can stand here and preach to you, and that is inconsequential in my mind. I want us to get to the place, by the grace of God, where Jesus, by the river of life, can teach us himself about the plan of redemption. Is that a class you'd want to attend? Beloved, that's a class that I want to go to. I'm telling you right now, I believe that heaven is a school, and I believe that by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit being our teacher, someday you and I will sit there, not with textbooks, with perfect memory, praise God, and we'll be able to hear everything from the lips of Jesus himself, the master teacher. The subject for this evening is entitled, The Truth About the Cross. The Truth About the Cross. Now, automatically from the title, what can be implied? If we're talking about the truth about the cross, then that automatically implies that there are some things, some misconceptions that have been had in the world about the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? We want to understand from the Word of God not only the significance of the cross in a general sense, but the significance of the cross of Christ in a what? Personal sense. What does the cross mean to you and I? Let's go in our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're turning in our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I would like us to see something that the Apostle Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians and chapter 2. We'll begin at verse 1. Say amen when you're with me. Amen. The Bible says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Apostle Paul says that of all the things he knew, and he had a very extensive knowledge, did you know that? Of all the things the Apostle Paul knew, he says, if I were to leave this room, if I were to leave this tabernacle and leave you with anything, It would be a knowledge of Christ and him what? Crucified. Do we understand the cross as we should? The Apostle Paul says that it is of the the utmost importance. Now, yesterday we talked about Jesus in a specific context. In the book of John chapter 1 and verse 29, 
The Bible said that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the what? All right. Jesus Christ is the chameleon of God. Is that what the Bible says? Talk to me, beloved. The Lamb of God, which does what? Everything the Bible says has context that needs to be understood and significance for you and I. Do you think God wastes words? How many of you know how to text in this room? Have you ever received a text message from somebody? Or, well, no, I'll stay in that context to, 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 to protect the guilty. Have you ever received a text from somebody? And when you see the text, you don't necessarily want to respond. And, and, and nowadays they have this thing where if, if a person gets your text, they can tell if you've read it or not. Did you know that? And so some of us like to click the button and turn off the fact that we read it so that whoever we're ignoring doesn't know that we're ignoring them. Beloved, the Bible is a book full of texts, messages from God. Have we left God on read? Do you know that it's one thing to read what the text message says, but if you don't respond, then you've left the individual on what? Read. God has sent us the word of God, not simply that we may read it and see what it says and leave it there, but there is a heart response. What kind of response? A heart response that God desires from you and I. Now, yesterday, as we spoke about Jesus, the Lamb of God, my heart was touched. I don't know if yours was, but mine was certainly touched. And as I'm looking upon the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, I'm saying, Father, how, how can I get your people to see him the way that I do? To recognize in him not a general savior, savior, but a personal savior who desires a close and intimate personal relationship with them. And as I'm praying this prayer, the Lord keeps telling me the same thing in my mind. Lift up my son. Lift up Jesus. Man can scheme many ways on how to get the gospel across, but there is nothing better than looking at the man Christ Jesus. We looked at him as a lamb, beloved. Now question, does anybody know where the slaying of lambs, the idea of that even came from? Why do we call Jesus the lamb of God? What was that? Amen. The ceremony. The ceremony. I'm going to say that nice and loud, my sister. The ceremony. The reason why Jesus, remember, Jesus was born uh, in Bethlehem. Amen? I'm just making sure we know our Bibles a little bit. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Amen? And Jesus was born to Israelite or Jewish parents, was he not? Mary and Joseph. All right. So Jesus was born to a Jewish heritage. Do you suppose Jesus understood the Jewish heritage? Do you know that throughout the Jewish heritage, throughout the, Israel, the history of Israel, they had something known as the sacrificial system? Does anybody remember the story of Exodus when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt and they were there for all of those years? And when the time came for the Exodus, God said that you were to take the blood of a lamb and shed it on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass through and know that you belong to Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, you find symbols of the Lamb of God, representations, types, patterns of Jesus showing us that someday the Lamb of God would truly come. 
But up until that point, beloved, do you know that there were thousands, even millions of lambs that lost their life in faith of that system? That's the truth. Could any of those lambs save us from our sin? No. They were only symbols. They were meant to point us to who? Jesus. Do you know the fact that we believe in the Lamb of God today is the only reason why Brother Paul doesn't pick up a lamb and slay his throat right here? I have no need to do that because the Lamb of God, which is Jesus, has put all those sacrifices in the past. The fact that on Calvary, type met anti-type in Jesus means that my faith should be in one lamb and one lamb alone. And there's not a farmer in this room whose field I'll find him on. No, he's in heaven, beloved. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible said something very interesting in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, speaking of the sacrifices that pointed to Christ. The Bible says... For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, what are the next two words? Can never. What, what do those two words mean? What do they imply? When can this happen? It means it's an impossibility. If it can never happen, then it is an impossibility. Are you following? The Bible says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto what? Perfect. Now follow the thought because we're about to understand the reason why Jesus is called the Lamb of God. The Bible says that the sacrificial system that the Israelites followed, where lambs were slain over and over, the Bible says, offered year by year continually, those sacrifices could never make the comers thereunto perfect. Does God desire us to reach perfection? Does God desire his children to reflect his image? Yes. Do you know the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, jot this down, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48 from the mouth of Jesus himself, he says, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, how many of us in this room are perfect tonight? Do we have a perfect Savior? So then the question isn't whether or not you and I are perfect, but is Jesus perfect enough to do the same with us? And beloved, I, I'll let you know right now, I'm dropping gems before I even give you the message. Jesus is able to do that, and that is his intention. But the Bible said, speaking of the sacrifices that pointed to Christ, they could never make the comers thereunto perfect because it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should do what? Take away sins. There are two things in that text that we need to understand as Christians. Number one, God desires to bring us to perfection. Yes, he does. And he alone can do that. It's not our work. The Bible says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord God. Jesus is the only one that can do that. But the second thing we need to see there is that the old sacrifices could not take away sins. Does God desire to take away sin from you and I and to give us the blessed righteousness of Christ, our Savior? Yes, he does. So we see that these sacrifices could never make the believer perfect, and they could never take away sin. But if God wants to perfect us, my brethren, and God wants to take away sin, but the slaying of those lambs could never do it, don't we find ourselves in trouble? Only if we're still slaying lambs, isn't that right? But if we found a better sacrifice... 
if we found a lamb that did and could and will accomplish these two things, then I think we're in a better position. The Bible says, speaking of Christ, in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, wherefore, when Christ cometh into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. By the time Jesus came, God had said, I have had enough with the lambs. It is time for the lamb of my choosing to go down there and to do for these people what none of these animals could ever accomplish. Those sacrifices could not perfect the people, but Jesus could. Those sacrifices could not take away your sin, but Jesus could. And beloved, the blessed news of the gospel is not that Jesus could, it is that Jesus did. If we don't understand that yet, beloved, then we're not yet Christians as we think. Jesus has done something for every man at the cross. It is a reality. It is something that he expects you to walk in. Do you know that the Apostle Paul says, Walk ye therefore in the liberty, not with which Christ will make you free, but with which Christ has made you free. What good is it to free a man, to free a woman, and to never let them know that that is their condition. Do you know we can walk into a place with shackles on our feet, shackles on our hand for no reason? You can sit in a prison when the prison is literally open because you never knew that you were made free. There are people today that you run into all the time, whether it's at the grocery store or at your job or wherever it may be, who don't know what we're getting ready to talk about tonight, beloved, and I'm telling you it is a tragedy because every day there are souls that are going into the grave. This is the burden of my heart. There are souls going into the grave who don't know what we're about to talk about. You're about to walk out of this room so much better by the grace of God than how you walked in. But they're out there never hearing what we're hearing right now. And I say we, beloved, because don't, don't get it confused. Don't think that just because I stand up here that I'm in any different position than you. I need the grace of Christ too. If I could bring this pulpit down by you, I'd be right there in the pew. Jesus is talking to me as well. Jesus is interested in preparing a people to stand before God. Jesus is preparing a people to reflect his image to the world, a people that walk in liberty, not because some man declares it, but because the blood of Christ has declared it. And everyone with whom we come in contact ought to know that if you choose to remain in bondage to sin, it's not because there wasn't enough power in the blood. It's because our love for Jesus was too low. Jesus says, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. So then the problem with the commandments is never that they're too difficult or anything of that nature. The problem with the keeping of the commandments is that the commandments often find a people who don't love Jesus enough to walk in them. God is not looking for legalism, beloved. I told you this last night. He is looking for the religion of the heart. And only Jesus can change our hearts. Speaking of Christ continuing, the Bible says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, for what purpose? To do thy will, O God. So the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, he says that while the sacrifices that were offered year by year could not perfect and could not take away sin, God sent his son as a sacrifice to do the will of God. And what was the will of God, beloved? 
to make the believer perfect and to take away sin. God's will was to accomplish for us the very things, bless you, my brother. God's will was to accomplish for us the very things that the sacrifices of old could not do. Is it making sense? Is it making sense? All right. The Bible continues in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, speaking of what Christ has done, beloved, it says, by the which will we are sanctified. That word are, I've asked you this many times already because everything about the gospel is present truth. It's not historical truth. It's not merely prophetic truth. It's present truth for present people in present trouble. And the Bible says that Jesus is a present help in a time of trouble, beloved. The Bible says we are sanctified. Is that past, present, or future? That's present tense. So then as we're reading the text tonight, we can receive these words by faith, and the condition you came in is not the condition you will leave in. The Bible says we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ 22 times for all. How many times? Beloved, catch the contrast. I, I love how God expounds things by contrasting the word. The Apostle Paul in one place told us that the sacrifice of lambs and goats over and over could not bring us to, to perfection. They were doing it every year, he said. But then he says, speaking of Christ, that we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once. Can you imagine waking up every day and slaying a lamb? Honey, I got to go to work. All right. Good night. And then coming back the next day to do it again and again and again and again and again, seeking perfection, seeking to be taken away from sin, all the while being the same sinner that you've always been. Over and over and over. And yet Jesus, beloved, one time, what took you years and years and still you didn't accomplish it, Jesus, one time. Let me tell you something. God is a straight shooter, beloved. God's aim is perfect. When God takes aim, he always hits his target. When God is seeking to save a soul, let me tell you something. Jesus has never lost a case. If we trust him, then what it took us all this time to accomplish, the Bible says that we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ one time for all. How many sacrifices did God need to make with Christ? One time, beloved. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, beloved, are you seeing the contrast? This man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. My sister's laughing. I'm laughing too. Because this is too good to be true. In fact, you know, some people may say this is too good to be true. I have a good friend of mine who often says, the gospel is too good uh, to be true is incorrect. But it is good enough to be true. It is good enough to be true, beloved. It, it, God is too good, but I assure you, it is all true. Everything that we've been seeking to do has been accomplished for us, guess where? In Christ. This is why I spend so much time emphasizing the relationship aspect with that man. Can you imagine if, 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 if some of us had uh, distant relatives, 
who were, uh, I don't know, uh, let's say they were, they were uh, extremely wealthy, and we were living in poverty our own, on ourselves. And the, the family's sitting there and they're saying, I don't understand why you're living that way. You are one of us. If you would simply pick up the phone, if you would simply answer the text messages, beloved, you would know who you are, and I would restore you to your former glory. God says, this evening, beloved, that by the blood of Christ, we have been made perfected forever, and we are sanctified in Jesus. Am I perfect? Absolutely not. But Christ is my perfection. Am I righteous? Absolutely not. But Jesus is my righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 and 31. Beloved, the point is, if we have the man, everything that we have lacked, he makes it up in himself. Now, there's another aspect we have to understand. Because many Christians today think that simply claiming Christ means that becoming obedient will never happen. Do you know that's not true? Obedience springs from an intelligent appreciation of who God is. When we know that God is love, the Bible says that God has drawn us with everlasting kindness. It is the love of Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. I submit to you that to know him is to love him. If we would only take the time to get to know Jesus, the fruit of that knowledge would be obedience in and of itself. You ask me why a man doesn't commit adultery against his wife. And you tell me that it's legalism. No, beloved, the man does not do that because he loves his wife. You ask me why a man doesn't steal off of the kitchen counter from somebody else at his neighbor. It's because the man loves his neighbor. Every time we look at the law and try to think as legalists, every time we go there and think we have the power to do anything, we fail. But if we look to Jesus, then Jesus is able to take us just as we are and to make us just as he is. Do you believe it? The Bible says that he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. So what we're seeing is that in Christ, everything that the old sacrifices could not accomplish, that's accomplished. Praise the Lord. Is that good news for every man? That's good news for every man. I think every man ought to hear it, beloved. The Bible said in Mark chapter 16, speaking of the gospel commission, this is Jesus speaking, and he said unto them, his disciples, go ye into how much of the world? all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature, and he that believeth and is baptized shall be what? Saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. It is a matter of eternal life whether we know the true gospel or we don't. Whether we believe it or we don't. It's a matter of true life. In the book of Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, two nights ago we saw that the gospel of Jesus is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. Amen? Did you know the Bible also said that the preaching of the cross is the power of God? And so in the same way on night one, we concluded that if Christ is the power of God, but the power of God is the gospel, then Christ must be the gospel. Amen? We can also conclude that if the gospel is the power of God, but the preaching of the cross is the power of God, then we can't preach the gospel unless we understand what happened at that cross. What do you say? We have to understand it, beloved. And so our first question of the night is this. Why did Jesus have to die? 
My sister said Jesus had to die for our sins. Is that true? Is that Bible? Absolutely. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. I believe our sister was onto the truth right there, and I praise the Lord for it, because it's these answers that we need to have for ourselves in order to share with those who are out there in the world. Jesus is looking to share something with us this evening. In the book of Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 23, the Bible says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there are two things in that text I want you to see. The first thing, the Bible said the wages of sin is death. And we concluded that the word wages, it means price. If you're earning your wages, it means you've worked for something. Amen? Anybody who's getting a wage, it means you, you worked for it. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the what? Gift of God is eternal life. Did you know we could work for death, but we cannot work for eternal life? Oh, we must have read a different text, my brother. Did you know that we can work for death? You can earn that because we're sinners. That's, that's what we do. But it is not possible for us to work for eternal life. The Bible says that that is the gift of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. How do you earn a gift, beloved? I don't know either, sister. There's no way to earn a gift. The only thing we can do is receive it. Do you want eternal life this afternoon? Receive it by the grace of God. The only place we find it, the Bible says, any man who has Christ, he has life. But if any man does not have Christ, he does not have life. The only way we can have eternal life is in having Jesus. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. What I like about Jesus, when Jesus spoke, you couldn't miss what Jesus was saying. Jesus was not saying, if you move next door to me, my brother, you'll be able to live because life is somewhere near me. Or I have life in a bottle somewhere in the, back in the back room, and if I bring it out and give it to you, and you just drink a little bit, my sister, then you'll have life. No, Jesus says, I am the life. To have life is to have Christ. To have life is to have Christ. And anyone who has him eternally and everlastingly, guess what they have? Everlasting life. The Bible said that the wages of sin is death. That means that sin demands a price. Isn't that right? And we talked about it the other night. We saw that sin is way too expensive for you and I. Sin demands a price that you and I don't have to pay. Sin says every time you use me to get what you want, then I demand of you that you die forever. How many of you have lived forever yet? So then we don't have it to give. Do you see that? But the only begotten Son of God, the Bible says in John chapter 1, I love that chapter, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ, the Word of God, has the wherewithal to pay the price that you and I could not. And that's precisely what he did at the cross. But the question is, if sin can demand that God pays that price. Just what is the nature of this thing? Do you know that sin is not your friend? 
Sin feels good for a moment, beloved. Don't get me wrong. Yes, it does. We, we, we've all been there. But do we know that in the end of all things, sin is not our friend? The only reason Jesus is seeking to take it away from us is because it is dangerous. Uh, sister Ashley, uh, my wife, was here the other day, and we were talking with our sister right here. And we were talking about a picture that we often seen, and I wish I had it on the screen, but I don't have it right now. Uh, there's a picture, maybe some of you have seen it, where Jesus is holding a gigantic teddy bear behind his back. And there's a little girl in front of Jesus, and she has this little teddy bear. Little girl, little teddy bear. And, and Jesus is stretching out his right hand, and he's saying, give me the teddy bear, please. And the little girl is saying, Lord, Lord, I don't want to give it to you. I love it. I love it. Do you know that the only reason why the little girl would not give to Jesus the little bear is because the little girl had no idea that behind the back of Jesus was something better? Jesus takes away, but he takes away to give us something better. There is nothing that you and I have in this world that Jesus cannot give us better for. Do we think we're richer than Jesus? You know, sometimes that's what happens. Jesus says, give me this one thing. Give me this one thing. And we say, Lord, I have spent 45 years with this thing. This thing is too good. Stay over there. But I'll go to church, Lord. And the Lord says, you know what? I'm going to work with you where you are. Come to church. And then you go to church, and you know what Jesus says? Give me the very thing I asked you for the last time you were here. And we sit there in the pew, and we say, Lord, I, I hear you, I hear you. But it's been, it's been 45 years plus a couple of days now. I, I think I'll hold on to this thing, Lord. But I'll come to church the next time. And Jesus is so patient. You know what he says? He says, all right, come to church next time. And the next time you hear Jesus, do you know what Jesus asks you? You get the point. Jesus is repetitively pursuant of our souls because he has better for us, beloved. And all Jesus wants is for you and I to get into the position of submission where we're willing to receive. We can't earn it, but we certainly can receive it. Amen? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, speaking about the sacrifice of Christ, the Bible gives us some insight into our mindset when we look at what happened at the cross. The Bible says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken and what? Smitten of God and afflicted. But Christ was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on him. Now, now first of all, do you trust the Lord? We trust the Lord, amen? I pray we do. If the Bible says that God laid the iniquity of us all on Christ, how much of our iniquity in this room can we claim for ourselves? That's a very good answer. I heard somebody say none. God took all of that stuff, I don't care what it is, and he laid it all upon Christ. Christ died with all of that stuff. The problem is we still lay claim to what Jesus has paid for. Christ has purchased you in all of your sins. You're bought with a price, but you walk with the same stuff that Jesus has purchased because you think... that there isn't power enough to free you. You think that there isn't power enough for you to walk in newness of life. Beloved, at that cross, something miraculous took place. At that cross, there was a mystery that began. And if you and I would receive from Christ the mind that he offers, I'm going to say some very special words. You may not understand it tonight. I heard Pastor Rob mention it uh, a night before. 
we can become partakers of the divine nature. Now, what Brother Paul is saying, I'm not saying that you will become God. That's not what I said. What I'm saying is that you and I can actually become family, children of the Most High God. Do you know that in the same way you can look at little ones running around and see the, the personality traits of their uh, parents in them, God, when he gets a hold of the mind, can do for us that exact same thing? That when people look at you, they will take note that you have been with Jesus. Never mind that they were at Jesus on prophecy. These people know Jesus personally, closely, and intimately. But the Bible says that we esteemed Christ smitten of God. Every time we look at the cross of Christ, where do we think the Father was? The Bible said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. I want you to think about that. I'm going I'm to test the mind this evening, beloved. I want us to think. God loved us so much that he sent someone else to come and die? Think about it. Are you seeing the point? Do you know that the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself? The Bible says that the father didn't just send an errand boy and sat on his throne. No, beloved, the entire Godhead was involved in the sacrifice. Do you know that God the Father truly cares for us? Christ the Son truly cares for us. The Holy Spirit is constantly working to win us to Jesus. God loves us, beloved, all of him. He loves us. There isn't a piece of God a part of the mind of God that you could point me to that would tell me that God did not love you. At that cross, all of God was involved. And it's important that we understand that because most people, when they look at the cross, see Jesus who loves us, but an angry father who only wants to take off his magnanimous belt and, and strike down the person who's guilty. Where was God? I want to share with you some very special words. And just listen to the picture. On the screen, you have a, a depiction of a, uh, uh, we'll call them a tribe. There's a tribe of people here, and they're casting the man into the volcano. To appease, to do what? To appease their volcano god. You see, the volcano god is angry with the tribe, and so they think, by throwing this man into the lava, we can appease his wrath, and everything will be all right. Is that a lovely God? No. But many of us see God the same way. Follow these words. We were told, brethren and sisters, Christ did not bear some other grief or some other sorrow, but he bore our griefs and our sorrows. He was pierced through by them, and the Lord permitted it. Why? Because there was healing in it for us. Not that he might appease God or reconcile him unto us. Christ is not, or rather, Christ is the price of our pardon. That is true. But let me state it, beloved. Jesus Christ is not the price paid to the Father for our pardon, but he is the price which the Father paid. Jesus Christ was not a sacrifice, a price that was paid to the Father. 
Christ was a sacrifice that the Father was willing to pay to bring us back to a repentant state of mind. And the only reason why we have difficulty seeing that when we look at the cross is because we don't understand just how dangerous sin really is. Beloved, sin is expensive. And the only person who could pay that price did so because he loves you. He loves me. Jesus is not the price paid to the Father for our pardon. He is the price which the Father paid to bring us to a repentant attitude of mind so that he could pardon us freely. Christ was the free gift of God to bring us to the place where he could pardon us freely. Now, after reading something like that, my question would be, what is sin? What do you mean that God had to pay a price? What is sin to demand anything of God? God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is omnipresent. Isn't that right? So then what is sin to demand anything of God? In the book of Isaiah chapter 59, I want to show you something. Go in your Bible to the book of Isaiah chapter 59. This evening, I want us to understand something of the nature of sin so that we can better appreciate the magnitude of what actually happened on that cross. In order to fully appreciate the solution of the cross, we must first understand the depth of the problem that is sin. Isaiah chapter 59, beginning at verse 1. Isaiah chapter 59, beginning at verse 1. Say amen when you're with me. The Bible says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither is his ear too heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your what? Have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The Bible says that iniquity which according to Isaiah is simply the sins that we know, when we continue in sin that God is convicted of, that is called iniquity. The Bible says that those sins separate us from God. Is Jesus somebody we want to be separated or drawn to? We want to be drawn to Jesus. I told you the other night that the best place in the world to be is at the feet of Jesus. So anything that could uh, increase the distance between me and Jesus Christ is something that I need to get out of my life. The Bible says that iniquity has separated between you and your God. Question. Is God omnipresent? Do you believe that? I believe that too. That's what the Bible teaches. God is omnipresent. Do we know what that word means? I heard everywhere. Amen? God is everywhere. Now, 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 that is not to be confused with pantheism. I'm not even going to go there. That, that's, that's not Bible. Amen? That is to say that there's not a place that you can go on this earth where the presence of God cannot find you. I told you nights ago that Jesus will visit you anywhere. He won't dwell anywhere, but he would visit anywhere just to get you. There's not a place you can go in this world where the presence of God is not there. And yet the Bible says that there's this thing called iniquity. There's this thing called sin that can separate you from a God that is everywhere. Think about that. If God is everywhere in existence and sin can separate you from a God that is everywhere in existence, where would sin have to put you in order to separate you? Out of existence. Do you know that the death that comes with sin is more than just going to the grave? 
By the grace of God, we're going to see in a couple of days that there is resurrection power for those that are in the grave. God is going to bring all those people back up. But the place that sin is actually trying to take us is a place from which there is no return. Jesus went in there first and came back out to keep you and I from going to a place where there was no return from. Many of you may not know the name of this man, uh, but he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a minister that I look up to. He went by the name of E.J. Wagner, very prominent man in my faith. And uh, E.J. Wagner was a, a proponent of a message, the message of justification by faith, the most beautiful message in the world. And I wouldn't be able to talk about the things I'm talking about now if it wasn't for men like E.J. Wagner. I want to share a couple of thoughts from that very man right here with you. He says, the utter extinction of those who reject the Lord is not an arbitrary act of vengeance on the part of God, but it is the inevitable result of their rejection of Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. He says, since they reject the author of life, who is the only life, the one in whom alone men can live and move and have any being, it inevitably follows that they must cease to be. And wherever God is, and we've already talked about the fact that God is everywhere, amen? He says, wherever God is, he must reign. Therefore... When men say that they will not have him to reign over them, that they will not be led by him, and that they will not have his right hand to hold them because they wish to be free from restraint, and they declare that they will not live in his presence, it is plain that there is no place for them in the universe. Does that make sense? If everywhere God is, God must reign, but God is everywhere then when we choose to not have God reign over us, we are saying we would rather be in non-existence. Isn't that true? There's not a place you can point to in all of creation where God is not the, reigner, uh, uh, the king and, and the one who is in charge. So when we choose not to be under the authority of King Jesus, we're saying, Lord, we would not have your rulership. Lord, we would not have your dominion. And Jesus, being a gentleman, is saying back to us, all right, you don't want my rulership. You don't want my dominion, but my dominion is everywhere in existence, so there's only one place that you can go. There's only one place for a person that does not want the rulership of Jesus, and beloved, that is non-existence. Are we beginning to understand a little bit more of the vile nature of sin, what that thing actually is, and what it means for Christ to have died that death for us to save us from that thing? It's deeper than just the grave, beloved. The price was so heavy. We, we, we have no idea, beloved. He continues, the only place where they can flee from his presence is to get out of existence. And God, who gives to every man the desire of his heart, will graciously send them there. It is not necessary that he perform any arbitrary act in order to do this, but simply to let them be. E.J. Wagner says, when his life is withdrawn from them according to their choice, their wish, they at once... Sink into nothingness, because outside of God, there is nothing. If there was no evidence in the universe for you tonight that God is good, have you ever thought about the fact that Satan is still running around right now? Tempting us? Are you annoyed by Satan? Tempting us, annoying us, causing us to fall? All beloved, I don't know who has the time for that. There are only so many hours in the day, beloved. For you to have time to mess up my, my, my day and to, and, to, and, to, and to cause somebody else to mess up my day and to cause their days to be messed up, you have a lot of time on your hands. You know the Bible says that the devil knows that his time is short? 
And with all the little bit of time that Satan has, Satan has chosen to take all of that to destroy you and to destroy me and to hurt the heart of Jesus. And yet the very fact that he's alive to do that today testifies to the love of God. Do you know that if God were to snap his finger, there'd be no devil? But if that were to happen, beloved, you and I would never have learned the lessons yet that were meant to be learned in this great controversy. There are things to be understood about who God is in contrast with who the devil is that the world does not yet understand. Most Christians don't even understand yet. Christ came to make these things clear, beloved. And it is only by looking to him that they become clearer. Now, I told you our first question. We're in our last 10 minutes. I need you to stick with me. Last 10 minutes. We asked the question. The first question was, why did Jesus have to die? And we saw from Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Amen? In other words, that is the price that sin demands. Anyone who would hold to sin has to pay that price. And anyone that would redeem us from that price has to pay it themselves. And that is precisely what Jesus did. So Jesus had to die because it was the price that sin demanded. But my next question is, how did Jesus have to die? How did Jesus have to die, beloved? Amen? Many of us are probably thinking right now, Jesus had to die on a cross. Amen? That's not the answer I'm looking for, though. I want you to think a little deeper than that. How did Jesus have to die? What manner of person did he have to be in order to reach you and I? In order to save sinners, he would have to be sinless. Amen? In order to reach men who were weak, he would have to be perfectly strong. Jesus has to come and meet us in our experience. And I want you to see from the Bible tonight just how far into that experience Jesus was actually willing to go. Are you ready to see this? No, you want me to pray and we can go home. Amen? Are we ready to see this? All right. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 34. I want you to see something in the book of Exodus chapter uh, 34. Moses was a friend of God. Amen? Moses was a friend of God. He lived with God as though he lived in the sight of the invisible all the days of his life from the time that he met Jehovah. Uh, in the book of Exodus chapter 34, Moses had a very interesting conversation with God. Exodus 34, beginning at verse 5. I want you to see this. The Bible says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Is all of that true about God? Yes. The next part says, And that will by how many means? No means clear the guilty. Pause there for a moment, beloved. The Bible says in the book of Exodus 34 that God will by no means clear the guilty. Are there any in this room that are guilty? I can raise both hands, one for myself and one for my wife. Amen? We are guilty. So then the question that needs to be going on in our minds now, if God doesn't clear the guilty, then what does he do at the cross? Beloved, do you know that while God doesn't clear the guilty, he is able to take away the guilt? 
While God does not clear the guilty, he is able to take the guilty and to make them something else entirely in Jesus Christ? I'll show you this from the Bible. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, the Bible says, the soul that sinneth, guess what? It shall die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Amen? Nobody wants to say amen because that's, that's, that's terrible news. That's terrible news, Brother Paul. I'm a sinner. The soul that sinneth, according to the Bible, it shall die. But there is good news to come because look at this. In order to die for any man, Jesus must die how? As that man. Do you know that it is impossible for Jesus to die for you if he does not first become identified with you, with your experience? How can Jesus expect me to overcome alcohol and overcome all these different things in my life and Jesus has never been there? In order for me to have a Savior where I'm at, I would have to have a Savior who has been, guess where? Where I'm at. Is there anybody in this room who thinks Jesus has not been there before? We're being quiet. That's good. I want us to think. Jesus has been there before. I want you to see this for yourself. I want you to see. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, but we see who? Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, beloved, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for how many men? Do you understand what you're reading? Hold on. We just concluded that in order for Jesus to die for any man, he would have to die how? As that man. But if the Bible is saying that Jesus has tasted death for every man, then we have to conclude that Jesus became, guess who? Every man. There is not a person under the sound of my voice this evening who Christ is unacquainted with your experience. There's not a person under the sound of my voice this evening who Christ is not acquainted with your temptations. But in Jesus Christ, beloved, we find not failure to overcome. We find victory and victory alone always. The Bible concludes, for such an high priest, speaking of Jesus, did what? Became us. Do you know that if Jesus did not become you, if this text is not applicable to you, then the Bible can't say us. Because when we read it, it includes everybody in this room, does it not? So then if Jesus did in fact become us, then there's not a person in this room who is reading this text right now who can say it is not true for themselves. And the good news is, the fact that Jesus became you, that's how he had to die. The fact that Jesus became you means that he could die for you because he did so as you, beloved. He did so as you. He has tasted death for every man. Now question, if Jesus did that for every man, how many men need to hear this? Every man. If Jesus did that for every man, how many men are there in this world who need to die? Not one. You see, a man would be foolish if a friend of his comes into the store and, and takes all his debt and collects all his debt and pays all of his debt, and that same man goes back into that same store seeking to pay the debt that's already paid. Isn't that foolish? 
Let me tell you something. So, some of you in here may be students, and you know student loans today, beloved? Let me tell you something. You may never come out of debt, if not by the grace of God. But if Jesus is able to pay the debt, I see no need for us to continue with the behavior that would lead us to have to pay it for ourselves. I don't believe in double jeopardy, beloved. I don't believe that Jesus pays the price and wants us to go pay it himself. No, Jesus says, I have paid it all. You know the song, Jesus paid it all. Amen? All to him I give. Sin hath left a crimson stain. Beloved, I think I mixed two songs there, but that's all right. Jesus paid it all. And I believe that because he did, we can trust him with our debt. I told you he's never lost a case, beloved. We're coming to a close right here. Two minutes. We're going to fly by the grace of God. How much like us? Somebody says, Brother Paul, that, that's great. Jesus became me. He became like me. That's wonderful. Does that mean he became a man and that's it? Because I'm more than a man. I'm a man with troubles. I'm more than a woman. I'm a woman with troubles. I have temptations. There are things going on in my home. What does Jesus know about that? Is that a good question? I think it's a very good question because unless Jesus is acquainted with that stuff, Jesus can't save you from that stuff. Do you understand that? Let's go in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're turning there to answer the question, just how much like us did Jesus actually become? Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, the Bible says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Are you and I partakers of flesh and blood this evening? You guys don't have flesh and blood? The Bible says, For as much then as the children, you and I, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also... Speaking of Christ, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. The Bible says Jesus took not on him the nature of Follow the context. My question is, if Jesus didn't take the nature of angels, what nature did he take? Is that a good question? If Jesus did not take the nature of angels, what nature did he take? Follow the thought. It says, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him instead, beloved, the seed of Abraham. Now, if you're reading the Bible in context, the very fact that it was contrasted with the nature of angels should tell you that the seed of Abraham is in fact the nature of, guess who? Abraham. It is the nature that you and I have. Now, I, I, I don't have much time to go into this right now, but I'm going to suggest the thoughts just to get you thinking, and tomorrow night we're going to come back to the same subject. What sort of nature did Abraham have? Did Abraham have a sinless nature, beloved? No, Abraham needed a savior, didn't he, my sister? So then Abraham had a fallen nature. Isn't that right? Abraham had a sinful nature. Abraham needed a savior because he was in sin. Isn't that so? But the Bible says here, 
For verily he took on him the nature, he took on him not the nature of angels, but he did take on him the seed or the nature of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. Did you know Jesus was tempted in his life? The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points. Yet, without sin. Do you know that Jesus was so pure? It is possible. And not only possible, this is exactly what happened, but I don't want to give too much because we're going to go into it tomorrow night. Jesus took your fallen nature, your sinful flesh upon himself. Pay close attention to what I'm saying because I don't want you to leave with what I did not say. I did not say that Jesus had a sinful nature, did I? No. It wasn't his. He didn't do anything to earn it. But he took it from you and he took it from me and he put it upon himself. And by the grace of God, because of the mind that Jesus had, that sinful nature never made him commit sin. Do you know that through connection with Jesus, the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Do you know that through connection with Christ, having the same mind, we can do the same by the grace of God? When the Bible says that all things with God are possible, the Bible means all things. There are temptations that you and I are dealing with today. Jesus met them, and by the grace of God, he kept them underfoot. There are struggles that we have in our homes. Jesus knows them. He met them as you, and he kept them underfoot. If we would trust Jesus with every temptation, Jesus will do in 2021 exactly what he did during those 33 years of his ministry. Jesus will do it. Do you believe that? Yes. Beloved, I'm going to close right here. I don't know if you saw baby Jesus, but I don't want you to, I don't want you to go over there too yet. We're going to go there tomorrow. I want us to understand who Jesus is. Have we understood why he had to die and the wages of death being sin? Have we understood a little bit now about how he had to die and the necessity of actually entering our experience, being a personal savior nearby and not far away? Beloved, I want us to have that same Jesus leave this room with us tonight. And so I'm going to kneel right now and I'm going to pray. Jesus is calling, amen. I'm going to kneel right now and I'm going to pray. And I want us to, to just think in our minds and to be praying in our pews. Lord, please. If you would go to that extent to save me, then I want you to take me all the way. What do you say?